A while back on this show, I talked about my dad. He's 80 years old. He has dementia. He's living in a skilled care facility in Marin County, California. The facility was and is experiencing an outbreak of COVID-19. I said I'd tell you more about that story. Today's that day. But it's not just because he's my dad. I wanna talk about this topic today because it affects a lot of people. Here in California, over half the deaths from COVID-19 have happened in nursing facilities. And one thing that's important to know about these sorts of places is that they aren't hospitals. They don't have a fully staffed medical team on hand. A crisis like COVID can get out of hand really fast. And since most of the residents of memory care facilities, like the one my dad is in, are elderly, they are, of course, also at a higher risk. It's my firm belief that we will look back on the COVID crisis years from now and know without a shadow of a doubt that we have failed our oldest and most vulnerable citizens, failed them deeply and terminally. I don't mean to be flip here. They will have died because we did not protect them. That's today on Telescope. Hi, I am at the VA in my usual place. It's January 16th, and I pull up to the curb in my rental car. I'm at the Veterans Hospital in San Francisco, California. It's out on the avenues, a few blocks from the beach my parents and I used to go to when I was a kid. I can smell the sea from here. My dad has been staying in a hospital room here for the past 100 days or so. Now he's on his way to a skilled nursing facility in Marin called Windchime. It's not how either of us expected the final chapter of his life would go. I navigate a maze of hallways and double doors. After enough visits, they are finally distinguishable from each other. I get to my dad's room and I find him sprawled sideways for the foot of the bed, his feet dangling off the floor, his mouth open. He's asleep. It's the middle of the day. I wake him up and we start to pack his things. He doesn't have a suitcase, so the nurses give us these plastic bags. Feels like I'm picking him up from prison. Often during his long stay at the VA, I felt like I'd never be able to help my dad, never find a permanent home for him, that he might stay in the VA forever. But now, as I shove his tchotchkes and books and boxes of tea into these plastic bags, I feel like we're in a rush, like it's happening all too hastily, which makes sense. He didn't arrive here by choice, and he's leaving as unceremoniously as he arrived. There were many struggles we endured before sending my dad to the VA and eventually to Windchime. The final incident happened last winter when the police had picked him up a mile or so from his house without shoes, a blood pressure monitor cuffed to his arm. He was climbing into the backyard of his neighbors. By the time he arrived at the hospital, he'd completely forgotten what had happened. In place of what had happened, his mind created a different story. He was convinced that his partner and his doctor were having an affair. And now, while they enjoyed fancy dinners together, he was imprisoned in the hospital by their design. It's the most crushing part of the story for all of us. My dad can't go home 
because being home triggers the delusion. If his partner leaves the house, he panics and starts wandering the streets. When she comes home, he spends hours raging, pacing back and forth in the house, accusing her of cheating and conjuring up nasty, unspeakable names he'd never have called her in his right mind. I'll never forget the drive to the airport after dropping my dad off at Windchime. My mind was playing the life story of this man who meant everything to me. It was like his life was flashing before my eyes. I was grieving the end of my dad's life, but the man that he was. This new and final stage in his life would be about keeping him comfortable and keeping him from being confused and stressed as much as we possibly could, which for someone with dementia is a full-time job. Hello. I wonder who I'm called. This is Thomas. Some days I'm his best friend, his only hope. Other days, I'm his worst enemy. Yes, well, hello there, son. If I still have one, uh, this is what I thought was your father. But I guess I'm not so sure anymore. You could have called me with something, but you didn't. I don't understand your cruel and unusual treatment of me in this difficult time. Bye. But I tell myself it's for the best. I have no other choice. Only several weeks after I dropped him off, the shelter-in-place orders became the first pavers on this bumpy road we've been traveling ever since. I know without a doubt when I really started to worry about what coronavirus could mean for me and my family was when the news of Kirkland broke. The uh, nursing home and doctors, the health department, they're monitoring more than 50 other people associated with this nursing home. The spread was so sudden, so quick, so devastating. A nursing facility overtaken by the virus almost overnight. Every day I wondered more and more if my dad, whose life had already fallen apart so quickly, could be in much graver danger. My dad had his good and bad days at Winchime. Most days, he'd just sleep and watch TV. But some days, he'd become agitated, walk around the common area shouting, expose himself, and make lurid remarks. He had an idea that the virus was spreading because of TV, but I don't think it really had fully set in for him. I was outside with my wife and my two-year-old son when I got the call from Windchime. A resident had contracted the virus in the same hallway the same floor as my dad. All the residents were quarantined now. Then the first resident died. Many more residents and staff would be infected. Staff call me, it seems like every other day now, to tell me when a resident has become infected with the virus. I've become so tired and I just let it go to voicemail. I read the transcript and make sure that it's not him. And as the weeks and months progress, my dad has less and less contact with the world. It's hard to know if he's getting better or worse. He's lost his hearing aid, and then his phone broke. His partner still comes to bring him things. She told me the other day that she came to the window, his room's on the third floor, and waved up at him. The nurses brought him to the window. He saw her, and he started to cry. A few days later, she did it again and he didn't even recognize that she was there. 
Around a year ago, my dad's heart stopped. His partner came home and found him lying on his bed, not breathing. She called 911, and they were able to resuscitate him. It's unclear what happened. But for a few hours there, I thought that that was it for my dad. Amid the panic and grief, I felt a clarity, though. A clarity I wish I felt now. When it's his time to go, it'll be his time to go. There's a story I love to tell about my dad. One year I called him on his birthday and asked him how he was doing. I'm fine, son, he said. Just here traveling the long highway to death. And he laughed, that inextinguishable laugh that will forever ring in my ears. He was, he was at peace with the idea of death. He saw life as a sort of preparation for it. He was a lone wolf, a problematic, brilliant, peculiar little oracle of a man. And I've loved him the way he always wished to be loved, at a distance. These days, uh, I'm sorry. (sighs) These days, I'm worried that too much of him has wilted away. And the stuff that remains, it only comes out when he feels like he has love nearby, when he feels close to some part of his former life, makes him feel sane. And one of those things is me. Being near me brings my dad back to normal for a little while. One of the last clear conversations I had with my dad happened about six or seven months ago while he was still at the VA before we moved him to Windchime. He called me while sitting by the window of his room. I was afraid we'd never have a conversation like this one again, so I started typing out what he was saying. He told me about the tree outside his window, that it had this special power. After a while, I could feel him starting to fade. He paused for a long moment and said, I wish this day could last forever but I know it can't. Me too, Dad, I said, fighting back the tears. Then he said, I'm getting this feeling of something familiar. I've been receiving these intuitions of how we'll be together very soon. I assured him that we will. But proximity is nearly impossible these days, especially while an outbreak of COVID ravages the facility where my dad will most likely spend his last days on this earth. And so he's alone in that little room while his partner waves to him from the street. And every day I wish with all my might that we can see each other one more time. That he can see me and call me son and see his grandson. And our eyes can meet And even if the rest of him is just a memory, we'll have been together one more time. That will be enough. I don't know if that will ever happen again. COVID-19 has affected us all, but we were all together unprepared for how this virus would impact our elderly. 
I met someone recently whose father was in a similarly precarious situation to mine. I'm Seth Fisher, and I'm a writer and editor in Los Angeles. Two years ago, Seth had to place his dad, Kurt Fisher, in a long-term care facility. But before his dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, before he needed that kind of care, Kurt was a developmental psychologist at Harvard, an intellectual, a force of nature in his field. Seth said that he was adored by his students. Most of his colleagues professed a kind of undying love for him. One of his students said he was like Einstein meets Mr. Rogers. The way he described his dad when we first talked reminded me of some Hollywood movie about the heroic teacher who makes personal sacrifices for his students to succeed. Like, he was one of the good ones. Seth said his body of work showed how special a man he was. He was really devoted to making sure people knew that children mattered. Um, and that might sound obvious. You'd say education schools should know that. But um, especially when he was starting in the 70s and 80s. He cared about helping to create an inclusive classroom at a time when that wasn't the priority of educators. He was passionate and charismatic. So he was um, quite... Uh, a memorable person. He had a way of being really kind to almost everyone around him, Um, you know, especially in, in the last 20 or 30 years of his life. And in those last days, Seth and his dad became closer than they had been when he was young. Kurt became a real good listener, he said. He would listen to people he disagreed with um, vehemently, and he would try to at least find one thing that he could have in common with them. Um, And he would use that, and he would end up building whole new theories, whole new ways of thinking about the world that really helped change the world. And so that's what I hope the world gets from him, is how to think beyond um, either or. He was a man who defied small categories. In his later years, he sought to understand before he judged. Sounds like a pretty great guy, if you ask me. But he wasn't perfect. That high-minded intellectualism followed him home. As his son, um, I did get to see his darker sides at times, as you might imagine. Now, you know, for me, in terms of personal um, life, he also, you know, um, he intellectualized everything. One of the things he used to do that just made me crazy growing up is he would say, um, no matter what I did, he would say, that's typical for someone your age because he was a developmental psychologist. (laughs) And then he'd tell me like what stage I was in according to Piaget and all of that. And, you know, I'm like nine. (laughs) You know, parts of this story rang true for me. And Seth and I spoke about this a lot. My dad and his dad are from the same generation, both men who spent their lives driven by ideas, men who prided themselves on their intellect, men who ultimately had to yield to a disease that eats away at your mind. I can imagine, actually, I know, what it's like to be the son of a man like this, especially if the relationship wasn't always a healthy or loving one. Seth says his parents' divorce was a rough time in his relationship with his dad. The divorce agreement was negotiated like seven times. 
And what they ended up landing on was that um, I would have to move every three years between the parents and fly to the other one once a month um, and also spend summers with them. The agreement made no sense and clearly wasn't designed to create a stable life for Seth. Kind of funny, considering his parents were both developmental psychologists. You know, my dad was actually doing a um, a MacArthur grant at the time on on divorce (laughs) and emotion in children during divorce. So he he knew better, um, but they did this divorce agreement. The last straw for Seth was a moment when he decided he didn't want to move back in with his dad in Boston. And he wrote me a five-page bullet-pointed letter detailing why Boston was better than Denver for me and my future. (laughs) And all my other parents just wrote me a letter saying, you know, um, we hope you live with us, but we love you no matter what. But his was, you know, his was just straightforward, like an an intellectual argument about why one is better than another. And I think that's how he knew how to think. Um, and uh, it, it was hard to connect with him, you know, kind of authentically in, a, in, <laughs> in that way as his son until maybe a little later in life. Seth and his dad became estranged, just stopped being family. And then, after 15 years, they started to patch things up, to rebuild a relationship. And that's where this all started. By this, he means his dad's disease. Kurt was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2013. As the disease progressed, it was hard to watch. Eventually, they placed Seth's dad in a facility in Massachusetts. He says the staff loved him there, called him Dr. Kurt. By March, people started testing positive for COVID at his dad's facility. A staff member, then a patient. The patient died. And so we were asking, you know, for everybody to get tests, at least on the floor, because it was on his floor. Um, And, uh, and, you know, they said there aren't enough tests to give them to everybody. People have to have symptoms. They have to have symptoms. And uh, then about a week later, I, I started, they said that they needed more tests and that they needed more PPE in order to give the tests. So I said, you know, I kind of did my best to find those things for them. And I I did find some places for them um, to get those things. One was in Germany and one was from the Bay Area um, that said they could provide those things. Then they said, no, but we can't we can't uh, do the tests here because we're not a medical facility. But they have a nurse on staff all the time who could do the test. They just didn't want the liability of that, I'm guessing. Then one morning, Seth received a call from a number. He didn't recognize it. And it was the head of the facility giving me the news that he had um, passed suddenly and unexpectedly. And um, actually, the day before... Um, he had been turned down for hospice for being too healthy. So his dad passed away while his nursing facility tried to contain a COVID outbreak. And at first he wanted to get him tested, but he received conflicting answers from authorities about whether or not he should do that. 
I was on the phone with the state who told us we absolutely had to get him a test. And in fact, it might even be our legal responsibility. And the city, which said he absolutely under no circumstances can somebody who's passed away have a test. Ultimately, he'll never know for sure whether it was because of COVID that his dad died. And I do wonder if it makes a difference whether Kurt tests positive or not. He relied on caregivers to keep him washed and healthy and to feel safe. Locked in his room under quarantine is as much a risk factor as anything else. You know, uh, this is a a traumatic event for the whole world. uh, And to just already be somewhat traumatized by having this disease, to be completely separated from your family. I'm sure there's, you know, thousands of people who are literally dying of loneliness, and it's just so heartbreaking. And now Seth has to grieve, alone. It's really difficult not to be able to hug people. Um, You know, I remember my stepmom, when they were putting him in the ground, I was watching on FaceTime and she couldn't hug anyone. Um, It was just the most heartbreaking thing ever. Um, And that's kind of, you know, how I feel. I'm I'm trying to be nice to myself. I'm sleeping a lot. I'm starting to try to exercise, do all those things you're supposed to do. But to be honest, there's some days where all I can do is open my eyes and stare at the ceiling. Uh, But there's also days, more and more lately, where I'm getting my act together, so... There was a lot that was left unsaid between Seth and his dad. Well, you know, there's lots of conversations I wish I could have had with him um, that I never did. So a lot of the process was mourning those conversations that I was never going to have while I could still sit there and be with him. Um... That, you know, that was really, that was really hard. And a lot of what I wanted to ask him is, you know, um, he was, uh, he, he was a successful guy and he was able to use his success to, you know, as far as I can tell from looking through all his work, really do great things for children in the world. But what I was able to do is go through his basement and in his basement, Um, I found answers to so many questions I didn't even know I had. (laughs) Um, I found, you know, love letters to ex-girlfriends. And, uh, you know, I found um, every piece of art I created from the ages of zero to seven. There's like two boxes full of them. So, you know, he clearly really loved me, clearly wanted to connect with me. Seth, you were loved. I have no doubt. Let's take a moment to remember Seth's father, Dr. Kurt Fisher. Thank you, Seth, for sharing your story with us. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Every week, we reserve a space in the show to talk about what your lives are like right now, what you're going through. We receive dozens of tweets, calls, and emails from you each week, and I thank you for that. Today, we want to bring you a moment from the protests that are occurring all over our nation right now. Protests over the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis have spread across the country and the world. Protesters are calling for structural changes to our economic and cultural systems, systems that rely on the suffering of black and brown people to exist. Here are some sounds from a demonstration in Los Angeles that happened just the other night. A big thanks to our producer, Carla Green, for recording the protest happening this week here in Los Angeles. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Kate Mishkin and me. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis and Vikram Patel. Our engineer is Mark Bush. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. You can also join our Facebook group. Just search Telescope. If you like the show, remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We want to stay connected with you during this unprecedented time in our history, so please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. If you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus that you wish to share with us, email us at pitches at neonhum.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. Thank you, and we'll see you on Friday.